Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 4. Um, so if you hang around the church, and I don't necessarily mean this church, I mean all the church. If you hang around church long enough, you're going to see two things. First thing you're going to see, if you haven't already, is a lot of religious hypocrisy. Am I wrong? You're going to see a lot of people that act one way certain times of the week and act in an entirely different way another time of the week. A lot of people that say that they believe something, but then their actions are quite different. You're going to see hypocrisy in the church. In fact, hypocrisy is, in many ways, what, according to the world, the church is largely known for, isn't it? Unfortunately, a lot of people stay away from church for that reason. There's too much hypocrisy. Hypocrisy meaning, you know, acting. There's just too many people that are acting one way and, you know, and around certain people and acting another way around other people. But you're going to see another thing in church, too. Not only are you going to see hypocrisy, but you're also going to see people doing things that they never could have done apart from some kind of a supernatural work. You're going to see people that were enslaved to addiction who miraculously are set free. You're going to see people who, who don't carry with them a lot of um, wisdom in themselves say extremely wise things. You're going to see people that aren't naturally loving do supernaturally loving things. You're going to see people that aren't supernaturally faithful um, in, in their marriages all of a sudden become supernaturally faithful. So you see both of those things in the church, and a lot of people get really confused about what to do with those two realities. They think, well, it must all be hypocrisy, or, or maybe it must all be good. And the reality is that in the church, because the church is mixed, a mixed bag of broken people, we get both. And all of us are at different stages uh, probably uh, in, in that journey depending on what, where, where, where we're at in our story, right? Now, I should know about religious hypocrisy because I'm the chiefest. Okay, I'm the chiefest of this. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a really, you know, in a Christian home, Christian environment, where uh, nobody really ever asked me if I was a Christian when I was a kid. They just kind of assumed that I was. And I didn't really give them any reason not to think that I was. Because I really care about what people think. Am I the only one in here? <laughs> Okay, I really do. I just care, and I always have. So, so when I was a kid, I really wanted people at church to think that I was, um, that I was this, this, this godly, you know, awesome kid. So I really gave them every reason to think that I was a Christian, uh, even though I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't. And I knew all the right things to say. I knew when to sit. I knew when to stand. I knew how to pray. I knew what words, what Christian jargon to drop in when I prayed. Um, I could explain theological realities. But I wasn't a Christian, and I knew it. See, the thing was, I really liked sin. <laughs> like, as, as a kid, I just really liked my sin. I didn't, I didn't want to have to be honest about things. I didn't want to tell my parents things I had done. I didn't want to have to be consistent in my behavior. Uh, I really liked what my church friends thought, but I also really liked what my worldly friends thought. And I really wanted to maintain both of those things. I wanted to be able to hang out with my, my worldly, my town friends during the week, and I wanted them to think that I was rough and, and that I was just this, you know, this... Um, tough kid, and then I wanted to hang out with my church friends. I wanted them to think that I was something as well. I wanted those two things to exist. I wanted to, to, to keep my sin, but I also wanted the, the praise and the adulation of, of other Christians thinking I was something. This is the reality of how I lived uh, really my entire childhood life, and I think I still have post-traumatic stress from it. <laughs> if any of you guys have ever lived a double life, it's stressful. Every day you wake up wondering if you're going to get found out. 
wondering if your parents are going to find something and realize that you're a phony. Realize it. I remember one time my dad got on my, and I love, I love my dad and I uh, care deeply what he thinks about me. And I remember him getting on my MySpace, if any of you remember what that is. Um, and he saw someone he didn't know. And I remember him taking me for a drive, almost in tears, and he said, Sam, I just don't feel like I even know who you are. <laughs> it just broke me. It broke me, because my dad realized that I wasn't the same guy with him that I was around other people. It was a stressful time in my life. And what was it that got me out of that religious hypocrisy? It was, it was two things. The first thing was, God showed me that he was better than sin. He showed me that he was better than stuff. He showed me that he was better than friends. He showed me that, that in fact, him, he, he himself was the thing that I really wanted. And everything else was just a poor excuse for that true joy. The second thing he showed me um, was that he actually was going to graciously help me unpack the garbage of my life. See, I had this idea that God was this bully and he was just going to come in and he was going to shame me and he was going to make me look bad in front of people and he was, it was going to hurt because I deserve it, Right? I knew I was a bad kid. I knew that I deserved to suffer. So I thought, God surely is going to make me hurt for this. So if I give my life to God, he's going to punish me. This is the idea I had. And then he, he came, he broke into my life, and he showed me something. He showed me that he's a really good father. And that he was going to compassionately and gently correct me. Just like, just like we do with our kids, right? We just want to gently correct them. And he did. Just, he just patiently let me continue to fumble and continue, continues to let me fumble through life and he just graciously picks me up and dusts me off and reminds me of his grace. And uh, these two realities for me were the things that, that drew me to, to Christ, this, this fact that he would fix me, that he loved me where I was and that he was better than everything the world had. Those two realities. Those are the same two realities that God has to teach me every single day. Okay? A lot of times we think God's trying to teach us a thousand lessons. In reality, he's trying to teach us one lesson a thousand ways. Right? He's trying to show us just a thousand different ways that he is what we need. That he is the answer. He's the reality. But religious hypocrisy is something um, that's really prevalent in the church. It's something I've experienced. It's something that I'm always tempted to, to go to. It's this, this idea that I can sort of be something without having to pay for it. That I can actually look like I've had a heart change without actually having a heart change. And it's so prevalent in Christian culture because Christian culture demands a lot of people, doesn't it? And you step into an environment like this, you immediately feel it, don't you? These people probably expect me to do certain things. Should I sit? Should I stand? How should I talk around these people? You know, like what, what's their expectation? So what we do in church, instead of actually dealing with who we really are, we just mold, we chameleon into whatever culture we go to, whatever church that is. So if it's a charismatic church, you learn to go, Amen right? And that's, you do that. Or if it's a charismatic church, you learn to lift your hands, or you learn to, 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 to make a lot of noise. If it's a conservative church, you learn to sit quietly. You learn not to speak during the sermon, okay? You know, you learn to dress a certain way, depending on the church culture. And a lot of us, what our sanctification really has been, hasn't been a lot of change as much as it has been a lot of conformation to a particular Christian culture. It's one of the damning dangers of church, Okay? Because every church has a culture that's unavoidable. And, and, and our tendency is just to want to feel like we don't stand out in that culture. Are you with me? This is where hypocrisy is really born. Now, I want to explain something really quick before we get into our text. Uh, I'm going to use two terms today. Um, and I want, to, I want you to understand what I mean by them. Okay? Spiritual and the flesh. Okay? Now, those, if you're not from church, those are weird terms. Okay? Spiritual, you probably think that just means something floating around. Right? 
immaterial. It's some kind of a non-material, physical thing. That's spiritual. That's not what I mean at all. I mean spiritual the way Paul meant spiritual. When Paul, in his, when his letters, when he would say something was spiritual, he didn't mean it wasn't physical. He meant it was in conformity with God's will. So when Paul said he was in the spirit, it didn't mean that the spirit is a tube to be squeezed out. He meant that in the spirit means you're saying yes to what God wants to do. You're in his will. That's spirituality. Okay, now that we need to redeem that word because we've, you know, spirituality has almost become a negative thing. But spirituality in the gospel actually just means you're saying yes to what Jesus wants. The flesh doesn't mean um, that material things are evil. This is what the Gnostics believed in the first century. They believed that, that physical things were evil, spiritual things, as in immaterial things, were good. So we should, we should either beat up our bodies or we should neglect our bodies or it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. None of that is true. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your physical body. It's talking about that part of you that is in rebellion to God. So with your, if you're in the spirit, you're tuning in to the part of you that says yes to God's will. If you are in the flesh, you're tuning into the part of you that says no to God's will. Are you with me? That's spiritual and flesh. And when you see that language in Pauline and uh, in, in his epistles, then you know what that means. Okay, God is not against the flesh. In fact, he's going to birth a physical universe. Did you know that? The new heavens and the new earth is going to be physical. And, and the heavens and the earth will somehow become one. So God is not anti-physical things. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be fully tuned in to God's plan and God's will. It will be entirely spiritual. Does that make sense? Okay. The reason I want to explain that is because our text today is a perfect snapshot of being in the flesh or being in the spirit. We have a contrast. Luke, the author of Acts, in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, gives us this really awesome contrast of what it looks like when we're controlled by the part of us that is at odds with God versus the part that is saying yes to God. So that's really our outline, okay? Uh, the end of chapter 4, we're calling it the authentic work of the Spirit. So if you like to take notes, if you want to get the outline, it's real simple. One, the authentic work of the Spirit. That's the end of chapter 4. And secondly, the hypocritical work of the flesh. The authentic work of the spirit, the hypocritical work of the flesh. Let's go. Chapter 4. Now let me get you into the, the narrative here because some of you guys weren't here last week and some of you guys are just joining us on our journey through the book of Acts, okay? Um, basically, at this point, this is the birth of the Christian church. Jesus has, has rose from the dead, spent 40 days walking around his resurrected body, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus high-fiving on the way as Jesus goes to heaven, Holy Spirit comes down. Holy Spirit comes upon the early church. That's a joke, by the way. I don't know if they really high-five, but I think it's funny. Um, the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church at Pentecost. Power comes. Okay, power comes upon the preaching of the gospel. Um, and then immediately, 3,000 get saved at Pentecost. Directly after that, this guy gets healed. Peter reaches out and picks up a lame beggar who hadn't walked in 40, day, or 40 years. Um, draws a massive crowd. Uh, Peter gets an opportunity to preach the gospel again uh, with this massive crowd in, in the temple. And, and after he preaches this sermon, 5,000 more get saved. It was probably more like six or 7,000 because it's only counting men. So at this point, um, the church has literally gone from 120 when Jesus went to the right hand of the Father to somewhere close to 10,000. Explosive growth. Okay, explosive growth. And last week we saw the beginning of the oppression from the enemy because the enemy hates the gospel. He hates the movement of the gospel. He hates you knowing that Jesus loves him. He hates people being set free from slavery and condemnation in this world. So the enemy is always working to destroy what God's doing. And last week we saw the enemy come against the work of the gospel through the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. 
So Peter gets put on trial. He gets another opportunity to preach, right? Um, he gets put on trial, and we see the, the, the enemy try to shut down the work of the gospel through the religious leaders. It doesn't work. In fact, they go home, have a prayer meeting. Uh, the ground shakes. Holy Spirit shows up even more, and they're ready to go back to work, okay? And we talked last week about the fact that if you ever want to get the church to grow, just tell it to shut up. Just tell it, just persecute it. Persecute the church and it'll grow. The blood of the martyrs, it's been said, is the seed of the church. That's the fact, okay? So church is explosive growth. Enemy tries to attack from the outside. That doesn't work. And here we're going to see the enemy actually attack from the inside. And this is actually the most common attack of the enemy on the church. You know that? It's, it's not the people on the outside primarily. It's the people on the inside. It's, it's those like the Judases, the people on the inside that, would, that, that Satan would have his way with to destroy it from the inside out. Okay? And that's what we're going to look at today. But first, we get this snapshot, this snapshot of, of sort of the honeymoon period of the early church. Now, every church has a honeymoon period. Some of you guys are just trying us out for, for the first time uh, this morning, and you might stick around for a couple weeks, and then you're going to realize in a few weeks that we're a bunch of broken sinners, and you're going to go, oh, well, I've got to find another church, right? Um, that's just the reality. There's a honeymoon period to every church. If you think you found the perfect church, just hang out for two years. You'll realize it's not, and you can find another one. Uh, but that's the reality, okay? There's just brokenness, brokenness everywhere. Even in the early church, there was brokenness. Even in the early church, there was hypocrisy, and that's what this reminds us of. Um, but God wants to meet us in the middle of that. Okay, so the first thing we look at, the authentic work of the Spirit in verse 32, look at it. Now the full number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now stop right there. Luke's trying to get us to understand that, that there was a unity, a supernatural unity to these thousands of people that had just become part of a family. Now the unity wasn't because they all took a new believers class and signed on to some kind of a church membership thing. The unity was because there is a supernatural thing happening within them. The unity is the same kind of unity that happens when you get married and you have kids. Yes, they're your, your wife or your husband or your kids on paper, but beyond the paper, you have a unity with your family, don't you? There's a connectivity with you and your spouse or you and your family or you and your parents because there is a spiritual reality behind your relationship as a family. This is what's happening here. These guys get saved, baptized, and they become a single organism. The church was united as one family. Peter, or Luke strategically uses the word one. They were of one heart. They were of one soul. Heart and soul are two different Greek words to basically communicate the same idea. The deepest parts of who they were as individuals was connected in oneness. They were one body. Okay? One body. And they were united by this thing called faith. It was those who believed that was united. So now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said or claimed that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Okay, now this isn't something that the apostles told them they had to do in order to obtain the membership to the church. It's not as though Peter said, okay, you guys, you're part of the church now. Nothing that you have is yours. Welcome to socialism. Welcome to communism. That's not what this is saying. This is something that came about of their own heart. They didn't view any of their stuff as theirs. All of a sudden, they, they noticed that they felt like so much oneness with all the other members of the church that they said, you know what, our stuff isn't even our stuff anymore. It's kind of like when you get married. 
What's, what's yours is yours, and what's mine is yours, and you know, it's it's all yours. You know, there's there's a reality to that when you're when you're a family that that really nothing is yours, everything is God's, and therefore it was available to each other. Now that doesn't mean that there was some kind of a church-sponsored communism here where you just you had to sell all your stuff and put it into the pool um, and be homeless. That's not what was happening. These people had private property that they chose of their own volition, their own will, to sell in order to take care of people that didn't have anything. That's what's going on here. It's way more beautiful than communism or something like that. Skip ahead here to verse 34. We get a more full picture of what is going on in this, this authentic work of the Spirit. 34, there was not a needy person among them. Isn't that incredible? Not a single needy person among them. Every culture has had their idea on how to achieve this. Maybe it's capitalism. Maybe it's socialism. You know, the Greeks had an idea about how they could achieve it. Even the law, God's law, was structured in such a way where if they would have just followed it, there wouldn't have been any needy people. But it never, they never did. So for the first time really in humanity here, we see that of their own organic desires, now there's nobody who's struggling, nobody who's needy because they're completely taking care of each other. It's a fulfillment of God's law. For as many were as owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Okay, there's some really cool symbolism here. I just want to point out, uh, last week we talked about how uh, Jesus is the, the cornerstone of the new temple. The temple in the Old Testament was the place where you would bring your tithes, bring your offerings, bring your alms, and you would place it to the temple, and the temple would redistribute it to the poor, largely, okay? Now, what's happening? The believers are coming, and they're putting their alms, they're putting their offerings at the feet of the apostles. Why? Because Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple, and we are the living stones of the new temple. That's the reality here. So we're seeing a, 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 a turning the corner from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, where the temple was the center of religion, to the New Covenant, which is where the living stones of the church is where we gather. The living stones of the church is where we find fellowship, and that's why we're here now. doesn't matter where we meet, we're in an upstairs loft, we're in a school, it doesn't matter, we are the church. We are the members of the body, okay? This is a beautiful reality here. For, verse, look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now they're not just loving each other, they're also preaching the gospel. And this is where churches, sometimes we get a little lopsided. We look at that and we see all we gotta do is just love each other and preach the gospel. This is what they did. And the power of the gospel was in the fact that the way they were loving each other backed up their claims for the gospel. What did Jesus tell them in John 13, 35? That's what he said. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, the way that you love each other supernaturally is going to affirm, confirm the fact that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the grave. And that he, in fact, has created this supernatural thing called the church. The way that we love each other as the church is our greatest apologetic. It's our greatest evangelistic tool. The world should see the way we take care of each other within the church, and they should say that confirms the message that they preach. But we have to preach it, too. We can't just stay within the walls of our church just loving each other and never preaching it. These guys continued to boldly proclaim the resurrection. The resurrection was always the center of their message. You notice that? It was the nucleus of their message. Because in the resurrection, it was an opportunity. If you double-clicked on the resurrection, it opened up everything to do with the gospel. 
Jesus was the new humanity, the new Adam. He was the seed of the new human life. He, he was the, the, the firstborn of the new humanity that would come through him. The resurrection was always at the center of what they preached, if you notice that. It says, great grace was upon them all. I love that. It's not that they're doing something um, just so well, you know, they have just the right methods and they're, you know, like, well, th- these guys just were so authentic and that's why they were preaching the gospel powerfully. These guys had powerful growth because God's favor was on them. God's gracious to them. He's being gracious to them. He's pouring out grace on them. And in verse 36, thus Joseph, we get an example here, Joseph who was called uh, who was called Barnabas. Hold on, I lost my place. Uh, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, so now Luke gives us a character example of what's going on. He's like, so here's a snapshot of how the church is loving each other, taking care of each other, and, and he zooms the lens in on this one guy, this guy named Joseph, who was renamed Barnabas. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you're probably familiar with this guy. Okay, he was a companion to Paul, Paul's missionary journeys. Remember Paul and Barnabas? On Paul's first missionary journey, Barnabas accompanied him. They ended up splitting at some point because they couldn't quite agree over what to do with Barnabas's nephew, John Mark. Uh, but Barnabas was an encourager. He was, in, in many ways, he was almost like a mentor to Paul in Paul's early years of conversion. Um, he was an encouraging guy. He was a generous guy. Now, nobody told Barnabas to do this. He, he clearly, he was from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. He clearly had property, probably in Cyrus. He had extra property, so he was fairly wealthy. Um, and he decides of his own volition, without anyone telling him, he decides to sell that property, liquidate his assets, and put that money into this general pool in order to take care of those within the body that didn't have anything. Okay? So what you're seeing in Barnabas is, um, as he gets even given a new name, what you're seeing is this authenticity. This guy that's doing something that he wouldn't naturally be doing. So something that, that the Spirit is bringing about in him. Forgot to say something earlier that, that is important to mention. Okay, when you talk about spirituality, there's a picture in the Old Testament. God used to call Israel a vine. Multiple places in the Old Testament, he said, Israel's like a vine. The reason he called Israel vine was because he says, I'm planting life. Okay, after the fall, there's death and death and decay, and you look at the book of Judges and, and the book of Joshua and all this, this decay and war, and then he plants Israel like a vineyard for the purpose of life. But that vineyard, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't obey. It wouldn't, it wouldn't flourish like God had intended it to. So it ends up getting chopped down. If, you, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, right, they get um, exiled uh, by Babylon. But there's this prophecy that comes in the Old Testament that there's gonna be a shoot of, it's called the shoot of Jesse that's going to come out of this stump, right? And he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, Israel, this, this thing that was planted to be life, though it failed, a new vine is going to come forth. A new vine is going to come forth. And through that vine, true life is going to come. The fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be will be fulfilled in that vine. And of course, we know that vine was what? It was Jesus. Jesus in John 15, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am the new Israel. I'm the Israel that failed. Israel could never be the vine that could bring forth the fruit that God intended for it, but I'm the vine now. And if you're in me, I will produce fruit through you. Isn't that incredible? 
That's what spirituality is. It's abiding in the vine. It's letting God's life pass through you like a conduit in order for you to produce what you would not be able to produce otherwise. In John 15, uh, Jesus specifically says, if you're uh, a branch and you're not connected to the vine, you can't produce fruit. You're good for nothing but throwing in the fire. If you're connected to the vine, life passes through you. This is the reality of the Christian experience. You are connected to Jesus, the new vine, and his life passes through you. So what's happening with Barnabas here is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he is connected to the vine. He's connected to the vine. Because he's connected to the vine like a branch, God is bearing supernatural fruit through him. This guy just wants to sell his property. Who does that? Who wants to do that? This is his livelihood, his security, okay? This is the supernatural thing that's happening. Now, that's one part of the story. But there's another part of the story. Because as Barnabas is supernaturally bringing forth this this authentic desire of his heart to want to give of his stuff, there's a couple people in the crowd who are watching this. A man and a woman, a couple, named Ananias and Sapphira. And we separate these two. We separate the story of Barnabas and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but they, they, they weren't meant to be separated. They were meant to be one contrast. We see the authenticity of what Barnabas did, and then we see a couple in the crowd looking on and thinking to themselves, wouldn't it be nice to be given a new name like Barnabas did, to be called son of encourager, to be popular among the apostles, to be praised among the apostles, to be thought of as spiritual. Ananias and Sapphira immediately, immediately has this desire to have what Barnabas just received. And they think to themselves, well, how can, we, how can we do that? Well, let's sell some property. Let's do what Barnabas did, sell some property. Let's bring it, put it at the feet of the, the apostles. But they have a problem. The problem is, is that they aren't authentically filled with the Spirit. They don't want to give their stuff. They just want the praises of man. Are you with me? So look at what they do. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word kept back, it's the same word in the Greek Septuagint used to describe Achan. If you're familiar with Joshua, the story of Joshua, that Achan, uh, we used to say as we were kids, Achan stole the bacon, but Achan kept back some of the spoils and he hid it under his tent. And because of that, it sort of put a a thorn in the side of this mission um, to conquer Canaan, if you remember that story. Um, Luke is intentionally using the same word. He wants the, the, the reader to remember that story. So what Ananias and Sapphira are doing here is, is meant to be implied that it's illegal. Okay, It's illegal. They probably predicated the deal on the idea that they were going to give this money to the church. So maybe the person selling it or the person purchasing it um, was willing to, to take a different price because he thinks these guys are going to give the money to the church. But of course, they don't do that. They keep back some of it. And they did it together. They schemed it together as a couple they become enablers to each other. And just a side note here, okay? Don't assume just because your spouse is okay with something that it's okay. You stand before God alone. This is the reality. Just because your spouse affirms something, just because it seems maybe like the right thing to do to be compliant doesn't mean it's the right thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they are enablers for each other in this. Enablers for each other in this, this sinful act. In verse three, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? 
to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worth noting, by the way, he says lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to God in the exact same breath and in the exact same way, which is a really good case for the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's saying lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God, same thing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Okay? Just a little Trinitarian point for you there. Peter said to Ananias, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained, listen to this, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Nobody asked you to do this. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Nobody told you to give this money. You did it of your own volition. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not, listen to this, you have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young man, this is a terrible day to be an usher, the young man rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out uh, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So his wife has an opportunity to redeem herself here, to come clean, to fess up and say, yeah, you know, she doesn't know her husband's been, been killed at this point. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I bet. Everyone's like on their smartphone checking their tithing record, right? And making sure that they didn't lie about it or something. I mean, this is intense. This isn't what you would expect to read in Acts, is it? It feels Old Testament, doesn't it? It's like, man, everything's great. Pentecost, you know, there's people getting saved. God kills two people. What do we do with that? Okay. I think it's intriguing. I think it's interesting. I think we need to give it attention, unpack it. Now, let me help you kind of think a little bit through this this morning. So what was the outward symptoms of what's happening here? Okay, the, the obvious sins of Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. They were deceitful. Okay? Those are the two, the two obvious things. Did, did God kill them because they lied, because they were deceitful? I think it's much deeper than that, much more sinister than that. I want, you, I want to help you to see that. The real sin of these guys, as I alluded to in the beginning, the real sin of these guys is that they're religious hypocrites. The real sin of these guys is that they really want to be thought of one way, but they're not interested in God reaching his hands into the, the deepest parts of their heart and actually making them want to be generous. They're not interested in that. They're only interested in the acclaim. They're not interested in the heart work. So, so because of that, they lie. And because of that, they're deceitful and immoral. But the heart of it is religious hypocrisy. Now, without a doubt, like I said, religious hypocrisy, this is the most damaging thing to the name of Christ, isn't it? I mean, the, the fact that the world looks at the church and they see inconsistency between what they say, what they believe, and what they do, it's damaging to the name of Christ. It was damaging here. It's damaging now. It's, it's serious. God takes it serious. Religious hypocrisy uh, is this. It is the acclamation of our external image to Christian culture rather than the transformation of our inner self to Christ's image. 
okay? We have this desire within us to fit in, don't we? We just do, and it drives us to do things like this. Now, I want to put a picture in your head, and it's going to help me take you where I want to take you in this, so follow me, okay? Um, our behaviors, they, they come out of us sometimes. They just come out. We, we are going to do things. We're going to say things. We're going to think things. We're going to act things. We can't avoid that. I want you to think of your, your life like a reservoir, your being as a reservoir. And out of the reservoir is a, is a river. You can't avoid it. The things you say, the things you do, the things you think, those things come out of you. And, and all of us, if we're being honest, have some toxicity coming out of that, don't we? The way we react to our kids, the things that come out of our mouth, the things that we desire, the things that we do that are, that are sinful, hurtful, broken. Now, the problem is, is what we do in, our, in our, our default setting is we go to the reservoir and we say, I need to stop hurting people. I need to stop saying crude or immoral things, or I need to stop um, hurting my wife or, or being demeaning to my children. So I'm going to dam up, dam up this outflow. I'm just going to stop it. I'm going to stop saying those things. I'm going to stop being a jerk. And that works for a minute. What happens when you, you, you put a big dam across a river? The water begins to spill out other places, doesn't it? That's why you, know, you stop chewing tobacco, you start smoking cigarettes. You know, it's like you stop eating sugar, you start eating more carbs. I mean, it's just like, it's gonna come out. It's like me and my skinny jeans, you know? Like you put them on, it's all gotta go somewhere, right? That's a bad analogy. It's... it's <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I, that was not in my notes. And I'll cut it out of the sermon. This is the reality. We, 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 we dam up these things, and they come out somewhere. They come out somewhere. You, you can't, and this is why behavior modification, it's the simplest way to go. It's the easiest thing to do. You know, what, what do you, what's the pastoral advice we all get? You know, I just, I just really have been just really rude to, to, to people lately. Well, you should just, you should just, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Terrible advice. All you're doing is, is forcing that sin out into other avenues. Just don't say anything. There's got to be more to it than that. So some people, they even, they, you know, maybe through counseling or different things, they say, well, maybe I need to deal with the reservoir. Maybe it's not just the outflow. I can admit that maybe there's something toxic in the reservoir. So they start to filter the reservoir. And it works a little bit. But no matter how much they filter, there's still something dead coming out of them. Just death. And they filter, and they filter, and they filter, and they filter, and finally they get exhausted, and they say, forget it. I must just be beyond help. I must just be beyond help. But what does the gospel say? What does God's word say that the source of that is? There's an inflow into our reservoir. Okay, and that inflow is the only way that we're going to be able to change what's coming out of us. The problem is, is we can't get to it. You can't get to it. You don't even know where it is. There are things in your soul that are so dark and so evil that you don't even know how to get to them. You have desires in you. I'm not trying to be depressing. It's just what the Bible says. Okay? You have things within you that are so bad, you can't fix them. You can't get to them. It's not possible. And a counselor can't even get to them. There are things that only God can get to. You see, the problem is you have an upstream to your reservoir. And in that upstream, there are multiple dead animals, 
for lack of a better idea. Multiple dead animals. And those dead animals are laying right in the middle of the stream. And for that reason, no matter how much you filter and no matter how much you plug up the outflow, there is still death flowing out. Only God can get to that place in your heart. So take that into our story here. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they see something they want. They want to be praised for their spirituality. But their reservoir is beyond their control. So what do they do? They fake it. Have you ever faked it? All the time. You know how frustrating it is to, to come to something that you don't know how to fix in your life? Something that comes out of you and you don't know where it comes from? And you don't know how to deal with it. The natural thing for humans to do is to just fake it. Just go, I can't fix this. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where this anger comes from. I don't know where this lust comes from. I don't know where these, just these evil thoughts come from. I don't know how to deal with it, so I'm just going to shut it all up inside and fake it. It's like cancer. It's like faking that you don't have cancer. It's like lying to the doctor, just saying, I don't have it. It'll kill you, right? This stuff has to be dealt with. So I want to suggest to you, and we'll spend the reminder of our time, just a few more minutes on this. I want to suggest to you three roots Three dead carcasses that are probably sitting upstream in your life. Okay? Three of them. If you don't have these, you're lying. <laughs> okay? Three things that are upstream. And these three things come straight out of our text. I'm going to give them to you and then we'll go through them. Narcissism, materialism, and legalism. Three dead bodies that are sitting upstream in your life. Narcissism, materialism, and legalism. And the third one is the worst. We'll get to that. Narcissism. By the way, the world tells you all three of these things are good and to be praised. So you're up against it. The world tells you that you should be obsessed with yourself, you should be obsessed with things, and you should, by your own bootstraps, pull yourself up and, get, and fix yourself. That's what the world tells you every day. That's why we sit under God's word, okay? So narcissism. Notice in our text that these guys, and I've said it before, they have a greater concern for the praises of men than they do for the praises of God. This is one of the things that scares me the most about myself, is sometimes I am more tuned in, often, to what people think about me than what God thinks about me. If you're honest with yourself, you think about it all day. What do people think? What will people think? What might people think? It's crippling, it's dysfunctional. We are so narcissistic, we are so obsessed with ourselves and what people think of us we're insecure, unconfident, prideful, selfish, disingenuous, hypocritical, unauthentic. All of these are symptoms of being obsessed with ourselves and what people think of us. It's all we think about. Narcissism or the, the obsession with the praises of men, it's like a monster. It just needs to be fed every minute. Have you noticed that? Praise, it's never enough. It's never enough. Somebody gives you a compliment, somebody tells you something, and you just need more immediately. It's like a sinkhole just keeps filling and draining and filling and draining. There's just no end to it, right? This need for people to affirm you. How do you know if you're obsessed with what people think about you? Here's a few really hard questions. What are you like when no one's around? Is it different? If it's different, it's because there's no cost as to what people are gonna think of you. What you do in secret shows you what you really value. If you act a certain way around certain people, it's because you want them to like you. If you act another way when people aren't around, that's what you really truly want, okay? Here's a harder one. 
what, do you, what would you do if you knew no one would ever find out? If you knew there was no social cost, what would you do? That tells you what is important to you. Now, God always knows, of course, we know that. But what we mostly think about is what do people think? What does God think? What do people think? I want to make sure that I'm right with people. I don't want my coworkers to think that I'm lazy. I don't want my wife to think that I'm a, a dirtbag. I, I don't want my friends to think that I'm a jerk. I don't want people to think I'm a nobody. It's the things that we think about. I've found in myself this carcass, this constant nagging fear of being someone unimportant. It's terrifying. Why do I care about being someone unimportant? Is it because God said I'm unimportant? Or is it because I'm afraid people might think I'm unimportant? And it drives me. It's a carcass in my life. It just brings death. It makes me insecure. It makes me unbalanced, uncentered. It makes me think too much about what people think of me instead of just being, just, just knowing who I am. These guys are slaves to what these people think of them. And because of that, it has robbed their freedom of caring about what God thinks of them. And that's exactly what Peter says. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, the real issue for narcissism, it's not just that we're obsessed with ourselves. In fact, most of us don't like ourselves, which is just, an, it's narcissism in another wrapper, isn't it? You know, you're down on yourself all the time, all that you hate yourself, you talk about how much you hate yourself. That's still self-obsession. It's just manifesting in a different way. You're still talking about yourself, just how much you hate yourself, okay? Here's the real reason for our narcissism. We're trying to find satisfaction and the fleeting love of love imagers, instead of the source of love himself. Let me say that again, because I wrote that carefully. We're trying to find satisfaction in the fleeting love of love imagers instead of the source of love himself. Do you understand that every human being is simply an image of the lover? And do you understand that you were designed to be loved by the ultimate lover? The one who has the ability to love you full. And we drink of the water of people that can never satisfy us. Our spouses, our kids. You know how many kids have been crushed by parents that tried to find their satisfaction in their kids' love for them? It's not enough. It'll never be enough. Acclaim, being famous, people thinking that you're something. Ask the fam most famous person in the world, they'll tell you it's never enough. There is not enough love in humanity to fill the hole within us because only God, the source of love himself, is the one that can fill us. God's love is everything that man's love is not. Man's love is fleeting and temporary, is it not? God's love is eternal, unmoving, unwavering. Man's love is based on our ability to earn and keep it, even in our marriages, you know, I mean, there's a reality to that, where, where it's still a contractual love to some degree, right? The closest thing to it is our kids, but, but even that, I mean, there's just nothing like God's love. He is not loving you based off of your ability to earn it. That is supernatural. It's an alien experience to anything we've experienced in the world. Man's love is emotionally driven. God's love is driven by his will, by his nature. Do you understand that? The problem with emotional love is it changes. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Man's love is produced by a changing being. You know, we change a lot. I'm a different person now than I was 10 years ago. 
I'll be a different person in 10 years than I am now. God doesn't change. His love remains the same and steadfast. So that's the real issue of our narcissism. And the antidote for our narcissism is that we drink deeply of God's love every minute. When you feel that insecurity, when you feel that need for the praises of man, when you feel that, that insecurity coming out, I need someone to tell me that I'm worth something. I need someone to tell me that I'm special. And your world, the world is telling us that we, we have to have people telling us that, but we don't. We have to find it in the lover himself. We have to find our affirmation in him. This is what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples the night before he went to the cross when he said this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. When he says abide in my love, he's not saying do good things so I love you. He's saying stay in my love. Don't leave it. That's the safest place for you. The place for you you need to be is, is not, not earning my love, but realizing my love. That's why John the apostle said he was the disciple that Jesus loved. Not the disciple that loved Jesus. That's entirely different. John's identity was not rooted in what he did for Christ. It was what Christ did for him. John abode in the love of Jesus. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples. It's what he's calling us to do. Just stay in my love. Abide in my love. Cling on to my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you. What? That my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. There's this idea that God wants you to not be happy. Now, I'm not talking about Joel Osteen happy, like get a better smile and more money. I'm talking about a deep happiness, a happiness that can only come when you realize that you are loved by a perfect God that loves you perfectly. And no matter what happens in your life, that love is your anchor. And so it frees you up to be centered, to be secure and confident, sacrificial and generous and selfless and authentic and all the things that the world loves and is attracted to, but they don't know how to get it. They think we can get it by giving us trophies when we're kids. That's not enough. You can give me trophies until you're blue in the face. I will still hate myself and want people to like me. Only God's love is enough. Only God's love can satisfy. I want to be somebody that doesn't spend my life thinking about whether people like me because I don't care because God's love is enough for me. You know what that does? It puts me in a position where I have nothing to do but give. I don't need. We're so needy. I don't need anything from my wife because God loves me enough. I could just give to her. I don't need my kids to, 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 to stay in my house for the rest of my life. I could just love them out the door. I love them as I send them off to serve Jesus because I'm, just, I'm loved perfectly by the Father. And the second thing, the second carcass up here in these guys' stream is the materialism. It's not just narcissism, it's materialism. This one's obvious, right? They have two idols that are, are coming into conflict with each other, Ananias and Sapphira. The, the one idol is they like what people think of them. The other idol is they really like their stuff. Okay? And when I say stuff, don't just think money. Think everything in the world that you really enjoy. Experiences, security, money, assets, whatever it is, any created thing. These guys love their stuff. And so two, the two loves of their life come into conflict, don't they? We love what people think. We love our stuff. Which one's going to win? 
they found a way to have their cake and eat it too. If we lie, we get to keep both idols. I think it was Augustine that said that, that idolatry is the mother of all lies, or the mother of all sins. It's pregnant with every sin. Every sin at its root is, is overemphasizing something God made instead of God himself. These guys love the praises of men, and they love stuff, and it's because they love both things, they're willing to lie to keep both things. They are in love with creation instead of God's God, the creator. Okay, this is the problem. The competing affections. Jesus said this. He said, where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be. This, this, was, this was seen never more clearly than when Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler. Jesus, the treasure of eternity, is standing in front of this guy. And, he, and all he asks him to do is go sell all his stuff and follow him. In other words, hey, get rid of all your nonsense and come follow ultimate joy. And it says that the guy went away sorrowful because he had much treasure. Right? I mean, this is the reality. He, he, he loved his stuff so much it kept him from what really could have satisfied him. My friend Kenner Gottsman, he calls these moments integrity check. Integrity check moments. This moment where you think you know what you value, but then something comes up that's actually going to cost you. And it shows you what you really value. You ever have those moments? Lord, I mean, Peter had a moment like that, didn't he? <laughs> hey, I know this guy. He, he's with Jesus. No, I'm not. That was an integrity check moment for Peter. He realized in that moment that he actually valued his safety more than he valued Christ. Integrity checks. And that's what's happening with these guys. It's revealing in them a deep affection for the things of this world over the one who created it. What's the antidote for our materialism? Find a better treasure. Find a better treasure. I, I had this little neurotic dog when I was a kid, and, and, it, and it would like grab something I didn't want it to have, like my socks or whatever, and I just couldn't get it out. And if I would try to pry it out of its mouth, it would bite me. You ever have a dog like that? So the only way I could get it to let go was to get its favorite toy and hold it by its face. And then it would let go and grab its toy. The only way you're going to let go of your lust for things and stuff and experiences and security and the affections of people is if you behold a greater treasure. You will gladly let it go. Jesus talks about this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went into a field, found a treasure. The treasure was so valuable, he went home, sold everything he had, and bought the whole field. That's what he saw. That's the gospel. Wow, God, you are so much better than the stuff that I thought was so great. That's the reality. And the third one, and this is, this is the most pervasive, and this is really what I wanted to talk to you about today, is legalism. Maybe you're saying, Sam, I don't see legalism in this. Where are you getting legalism? Okay. Legalism is here because what legalism does is it makes us think that we can change based on our own will. It makes us think that we can access that stream. And God is the only one that can. Legalism is someone saying, I can change myself. It's actually the ultimate arrogance. It was the thing Jesus spoke out against the most. It's the idea that we as humans have the ability to change the deepest affections of our hearts, and we don't. We just simply don't. Now, every human will come to a crossroad in their life. You come to this point where you are face-to-face -face with the reality of who you are. 
It's called midlife crisis for some of us. For some of us, it's just called life. You think you were one thing. You thought you were one thing. You thought you were going to be this kind of dad, this kind of husband, this kind of wife, this kind of friend, this kind of worker. And then you come into reality with who you actually are. And you have to make a decision at that crossroads. Am I going to deal with who I am? Or am I going to fake who I am? Legalism says fake it. Legalism says you can do it. You can make yourself into something better. You see this in the garden. Okay, follow me on this. I know. Follow me on this. Adam and Eve, they come to this crossroads. They sin. They realize what? That they're naked. And they're ashamed. Shame comes. They know that they're naked and they don't want God to see them. So they hide from God. It's exactly what we do when we sin. We hide from God. And then what do they do? They sow for themselves fig leaves. They, they, they do their best attempt to cover up their shame. That is legalism. It's this, this thing, you know, I, I don't like who I am. I don't know how to fix it. But rather than go to God with it, I'm going to make for myself a facade. A facade that is going to hopefully alleviate this pressure and this self-hatred that I have for who I'm not. Okay, so they sow these fig leaves. That's legalism. But what's the gospel? The gospel in Genesis is that God comes down and he finds them and he graciously, lovingly sews for them garments made of a sacrifice. He comes and he says, I'll clothe your shame. Graciously. God comes in and says, I'll pay for this. I will provide a sacrifice for this. I will clothe you. You don't have to mess around with sewing fig leaves together. I'll cover you. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. You have a decision to make every minute of your day in your life. Will you do what Ananias and Sapphira did? And that is realize that your affections are not where they should be. So you fake it. Or will you bring that reality to bear to a gracious and a loving father and say, God, I don't know why I'm so messed up, but will you fix me? This is what brought me to tears when I got saved at 17. I got to a point where I was so sick of myself, so tired of the destruction of my, my, me running my life, and I finally gave up. It's called repentance. And I came to God, a gracious father, and I, in tears, I said, God, I'm sick of running my life. I want you to do it now. Would you deal with the stuff in my life that I can't get to? And what repentance is, it's that moment of honesty before God. And it's admitting that you're not what you should be. But it only happens if you believe he's really good. You'll never do it if you don't believe he's really good. You'll never trust him with your sin. You'll never trust him with your brokenness. You'll never trust him with the, the carcasses in your life if you don't believe he's good and gracious, and patient, and he's going to faithfully walk these things out in your life. He's not going to hurt you. He loves you. The only way to deal with your sin is to look Jesus in the eyes with it. I mean, when we sin, the first thing we want to do is look down. Don't want to pray. I don't want to read. God doesn't like me. He doesn't want to look at me. But Jesus is just saying, just look at my eyes and see who I am. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Legalism is literally the enemy of the spiritual work. It's the enemy of spiritual work because it tells the Holy Spirit, I don't need you. 
I can do this. And you can't. You can't. How could this have gone differently for Ananias and Sapphira? They could have come to the Father and said, we don't have the same heart as Barnabas. And they could have come to their brothers and sisters and said, we don't have the same heart, but we want to. Would you pray with us? Peter's like, nobody asked you guys to sell your stuff. Nobody asked you to bring your, 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 your sacrifice. They didn't have to do that. They were compelled by legalism. And the gospel undoes that. The gospel undoes that. Jesus told Peter, Peter, unless you let me wash your feet, you have no place with me. Peter says, well, give me a bath. And Jesus is like, no, no you're already forgiven. But unless you let me interact with the garbage in your soul every day, graciously, lovingly, like a doctor with a scalpel, cutting out cancer, you have no part with me. Let me love you, Peter. Let me love you. That's what he's saying, right? And right now, that's just what God's asking you to do. He's asking you to trust him. And just say, God, deal with it. Deal with this in me. I can't fix it. I don't know how to fix it. It's so hard for us to say that, isn't it? I don't know where this comes from, but I need God to fix it. Don't look away from it. I'm gonna pray, and then I wanna invite um, Steve and River to come up. Steve and River, I'll explain a little bit about them in a minute. Um, I just wanna interview them really quick for the next 12 minutes, and so that you guys can hear a little bit of God's work in their life. So let me pray, guys, why don't you come up and join us up here. Father, um, I thank you this morning for the truth and the goodness of the gospel. Lord, that we can come to you, that you are a good Father. Jesus, that you actually paid for our ability to be forgiven. Not just that you forget it, but that you dilute it. God, I pray for freedom in this place. I pray for freedom in this church. Not the kind of freedom the world gives, not the kind of freedom that religious um, systems give, a way for us to feel good about ourselves. Lord, we pray for that true life to come. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name.